Welcome to the Exalt Podcast. My name is Christopher Shagnon. And I'm Sophia Hagalani-Albog. This month, we are extremely excited to be joined by Patience Masusa from the Nordic Africa Institute. Patience was actually my mentor when I was fortunate enough to get to spend a month there in Uppsala. Patience has been a great help, great guidance, and we're super, super excited to have her on the show. So, Patience, welcome to the show. Would you mind introducing yourself for our guests? Sophia and Christopher, thank you for uh, inviting me to this conversation. And it was uh, great to connect when you're here at the Nordic Africa Institute and to hear about you know, your own research and work in Zambia around digital extractivism. So who am I? I'm an anthropologist working as a social scientist focusing on mining and urbanization in Southern Africa, primarily Zambia. I do have a background in architecture, and that kind of explains my interest in uh, place. I grew up in a mining town on the Zambian Copper Belt. So I guess that's what kind of brings this to interest in how mining um, influences urban dynamics. So, yeah, I'm interested in a bunch of stuff, you know, from the stuff that makes our cities to the ways in which people kind of interact when you have kind of like large scale mining industries and to the way in which they produce where they live and try to make a life when um, there are kind of economic downturns as you get when you get mining activity. That sounds like a really interesting marriage of subjects, Uh, true interdisciplinarity, anthropology and architecture and urban and mining. I'm really interested to uh, see how this conversation unfolds. But you said that you grew up in a mining town on the Zambian Copper Belt. How did you get into doing research? Would you mind telling us a little bit about your trajectory? Yeah, sure. So... (laughs) I started off by wanting to be an architect, you know, um, and studying architecture on the Copper Belt in Kitwe at the Copper Belt University, which then had the only architecture school in the country. And I graduated in the late 90s at the time when um, the country, Zambia, was undergoing a kind of major socioeconomic crisis. And it had also kind of in the early 90s undergone a kind of major kind of social political transformation. It had become a multi-party country after having been a one-party state. It had also moved from being a kind of semi-socialist economy to being an unregulated free market (laughs) after Uh, So it really kind of shifted the economy. And attendant with that was that the kind of big state industry, such as um, the mining and kind of various state corporates, were all being privatized roughly around the mid-1990s. And so for the firms where I had interned and then kind of later worked, they barely had any work or jobs uh, because they, you know, the economy had a major downturn. And I remember that time kind of asking, oh, you know, what's going on? And when you're not trained as a social scientist and you've not kind of um, done courses in political economy, it was kind of like a whole bunch of questions. So after working a couple of years, I applied for master's programs and then looking for scholarships because, of course, I didn't have any money. Very few people had any money in the country then. And I ended up 
in the UK at Oxford Brooks studying development and urbanization, uh, which was in an architecture planning department. <laughs> and that, I would say, was the beginning of my research journey into looking, um, you know, from an architect and then becoming a kind of researcher. Thank you. That's that's absolutely fascinating. So I guess in this path, uh, what were you focusing on with that master's? Because I mean, it sounds so interesting to me to have this sort of you know development angle embedded within architecture. And then, of course, you know, you've made your way into anthropology through that. So uh, would you mind uh, telling us a bit more about that? It's, yeah, fascinating. Uh, yes, the development practice and actually called the development practice program at uh, Oxford Brooks, you know, brought a whole range of people from kind of different disciplines, you know, from people kind of working in, uh, you know, humanitarian emergency shelter to people focusing on humanitarian law and lots of architects, actually. And and, and my interest at that time was um, the crisis in Zambia had resulted actually in a lot more young people living on the street, not just as a result of the economic crisis, but the country at that time was also like many other sub-Saharan countries, was at effectively at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic. So uh, lots of children having been uh, orphaned, having lost uh, caregivers, and this was kind of highly visible. And in the program, you had, um, you know, lecturers and academics who were focusing on kind of different aspects. You know, how do you plan, you know, from... Uh, both from a practical spatial uh, perspective to address these kinds of social challenges. And, and, and also other lecturers focusing on more the broader political economic questions. How and why did we find ourselves in this situation and, and placing Zambia's uh, economic situation within a kind of wider social economic transformation that was you know, not just kind of Africa continental, but was also global, just in a kind of bit of a slower pace in 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 other in other settings. And uh, and then of course, you know, there was others focusing on more the legislative aspect. So I did that, and the scholarship that I had was quite generous. Um, so I. I, I went on later to uh, do a master's in um, museum ethnography and material anthropology, uh, focusing much more there on the politics behind the aesthetics in how spaces are produced, you know. So why is it kind of that as architects, I guess, what kind of agents of capital can kind of tend to produce space and kind of materialize in effect, what the kind of dominant political economic structure of the of the society. So I remember my thesis was looking more at why are architects in Zambia reproducing the same kind of stuff? More on those lines, kind of asking, you know, what is the political, technical aesthetic that uh, architects in Zambia are, uh, are reproducing and why? What is his legacy um, why does it tend towards uh, capital-intensive uh, buildings, such as the use of concrete, which costs more and is much more energy-intensive? Why are we so uh, consumed by the idea of modernity uh, and progress in those kinds of questions? And um, why do we perceive the vernacular as not so uh, innovative and sustainable 
and um, and how does this kind of contribute towards reproducing societal inequalities? Wow, those are really, really interesting questions, especially the ones about space and place. And those are those are some subjects that I know always really get me interested too, because in my work, you know, I do like to think a lot about how we produce place and, you know, what is place even and what's going into making places what they are. But I do have to ask, earlier you mentioned that you had interest, for example, in mining. And I'm wondering, how does mining come into this or when did mining come into this? Sophia, that's a really good question. So I, I ended up back on the Copper Belt and teaching in the architecture department. And it was a really quite striking thing because I had grown up on the Copper Belt, spent my early formative years there in going to university, but then moved to the capital, Lusaka, and working in practice. And so moving back, you know, these mining towns, you know, that I had uh, grown up in uh, during the kind of uh, height of a kind of corporate welfare industrialism had kind of been really quite been quite well run, almost a little bit too well run, actually, if I have to admit, kind of tightly regulated spaces uh, in a way that you'd kind of get in the Nordics actually, in some sense, you know, so clean streets, uh, rainwater drains clear, uh, gardens trimmed, um, recreational facilities, you know, for, you know, for kind of active uh, life, um, you know, where you could kind of play squash and uh, tennis and kind of volleyball was what had kind of characterized this uh, Zambia's copper mining towns. And um, the crisis had completely changed them. Um, people were struggling to make a living. Um, they were about two thirds of the labor force after the privatization of the kind of big state mining corporate, the Zambia Consolidated Copper Mines. Uh, after it had kind of been like uh, reprivatized, two thirds of the workforce had been retrenched and uh, and related support industries uh, had closed, and the kind of wider economic repercussions on on people's lives were quite visible uh, within the landscape. And so, um, in this formally tightly regulated uh, space, uh, people had started um, organizing their own livelihoods, you know, keeping more chickens in the backyard than had previously been allowed under the kind of, you know, company town uh, ordinances. Uh, they were breaking down anthills to make bricks so that they could build like chicken runs or add uh, new rooms in the kind of in their backyards to to accommodate tenants. And people were kind of, you know, and people, you know, kept, you know, kept on saying, oh, you know, um, gosh, this place used to work quite well, and now it doesn't. Uh, people were concerned about uh, young people, you know, as parents struggled to now pay for their school fees when education used to be heavily subsidized. Um, so this shift and and change. Uh, in the landscape kind of catalyzed new research questions. And I, 
and I applied to, uh, to kind of for doctorate program to to pursue these um, to pursue these questions and try to understand, you know, what was going on? Uh, how had people's sense of place uh, shifted and changed? And initially, I was kind of focusing very much on the kind of practicalities of what people uh, did to make uh, a living. But it also ended up being very much about how people began to imagine their futures, uh, what they thought about their present and also how the kind of moral economy had changed uh, with this kind of societal transformation, which was quite visible in the landscape. And I guess it's a little bit, I mean, um, you know, for you guys who come from I, from the States, it's, you know, kind of a, a good example would be thinking about the kind of industrial Midwest and uh, an industrial decline and how that kind of transforms place. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. I mean, this is so fascinating and so many different angles I, I would love to go into. I mean, even going back to the architecture and what you were talking about with uh, concrete and place and me thinking of like being in Lusaka and going through like informal settlements and things like that. But to keep in this vein, to not totally jump around all the time. Um, you know, this is such a fascinating and heartbreaking description of this change with privatization. So I guess like to kind of have a bit more background on it, uh, especially for our listeners, with this privatization, were Zambian companies still dominating the market? Are they still dominating the market? Did foreign companies take over? And then also kind of connected to that with this shift from like a single party state to multi-party, why was there this sort of shock therapy style privatization? I mean, was it an internal thing with the new ruling parties? Was it uh, something from like, you know, the IMF is famous for forcing countries to do this sort of thing? So how did this happen? There's sort of several factors, just for sort of like a quick context. Zambia is a kind of copper mining economy. So the copper is dominant. And so even though there's a kind of, uh, within the region, a kind of longer term ancient pre-colonial history of copper mining, industrial mining became established in the copper belt at the beginning of the 20th century. And you had kind of two private mining companies kind of dominating the sector. You had the Anglo-American Corporation that had kind of its genesis in the kind of British South Africa company, which was, you know, Cecil Rhodes kind of um, empire making corporation. And you also had the Rhodesian Selection Trust, which was kind of more American capital established by Alfred Chester Beatty. And, um, and so these companies and corporations, you know, were the kind of two dominant uh, sectors all the way up to um, the country's independence in 1964 and up to just about 1970 when they were uh, nationalized with the state at that post-independent state gaining a majority stake in the industry. But with active labor, uh, trade union movements that uh, the historian uh, Miles Lama writes so well about uh, in, the, in terms of the formation of the kind of like uh, mining labor unions on the, on, on the copper belt. 
you had by the 1950s, the expansion of this kind of industrial welfare approach that had been adopted, which was quite dominant in other parts of the world, you know, like Australia and, you know, the US as well, you know, where you had these kind of like company towns that adopted a kind of paternalistic kind of corporate welfareism. Post-independence, that became kind of expanded with the kind of nationalization of this uh, industry, which consolidated much more to kind of state dominance by the early 80s. But unfortunately, with the oil crisis of the 90s, 1970s and a kind of global economic uh, downturn, which effectively precipitated kind of, you know, decreased demand for copper, coupled with the fact that Zambia, like many newly independent countries, had had this kind of massive social spending programs on health, education, infrastructure, effectively to make the kind of, you know, new African states, you know, to materialize the nation, you know, if if one can say. So this saddled them with like actually quite a significant debt in the context also in particular in the, you know, in the late 70s to 80s in a context of not such a great global economy. James Ferguson, a Stanford-based anthropologist, writes a fantastic book effectively kind of charting this particular period in his book, expectations of modernity. And so it is within that kind of context of high national debt as a result of this kind of big developmental spending in the kind of post-independence years, global economic crisis that um, coupled with a kind of policy shift, uh, you know, coalesced around the Washington consensus that is kind of known very much within the kind of um, uh, you know, the coming together of kind of like Reagan and Thatcher thinking, which effectively was like, you know, states are not so efficient, um, you know, kind of drawing on the kind of free market uh, liberal thinking of people like von Hayek and others, and that by diminishing the role of the state and expanding the role of the market, uh, you can make societies work much more efficiently. And given the coalescence of this kind of not just Zambia crisis, but Africa crisis, a lot of sub-Saharan African countries became the site of an implementation of this big experiment in kind of free market um, thinking. This also coincided as well, you know, because you had uh, across several African countries as well, the dominance of one party states, you know, uh, and in the Zambian context, the kind of one party state also formed roughly around the time that there was the nationalization program. And it was ostensibly argued that it was much more efficient to chart this national agenda within a context also when there were all these like liberation movements in the in the region, you know, uh, South Africa was still under apartheid. Uh, Zimbabwe then was not Zimbabwe, it was Southern Rhodesia. You had Angola and uh, Mozambique still, you know, effectively struggling for their independence. And so internally within Zambia, uh, you had a couple of kind of opposition parties. And it was seen that this kind of opposition party environment, it was argued within the country, uh, was quite disruptive potentially, and destabilizing to one, the wider support, political support within the region, but also within the kind of national agenda. But within the context of crisis, uh, with an increasingly populace that was struggling economically, 
but also had limited political voice, it effectively catalyzed the push for the reintroduction of multi-party politics, which occurred around the time that you also had the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, effectively kind of charting in, in African countries, truly a kind of introduction of liberal democracy or an idea of it, and also the idea of a free market. And this is what led and pushed to the wholesale privatization of these kind of key industries, in particular mining, such as the Zambia Consolidated Copper Mines, which was effectively the conglomeration that brought together those two mining corporations that had established industrial mining in the country. So what do you have today? Um, today, uh, the state uh, the, uh, still has some stake in the mining sector, a minority stake, and you have a number of mining corporations, you know, um, large-scale industrial mining still uh, registered in, uh, you know, some mining companies, you know, registered in Canada, one of the largest uh, new green field mining developments in northwestern Zambia, first quantum minerals registered in Canada. Uh, you have Indian-owned but London-registered mining corporations such as uh, Vendetta, which owns uh, one of the, the largest open pit mine in the country in Chingola. And you also have uh, new on the board, um, uh, Chinese-owned mining companies in the town that I did research on in Luantia. Uh, they don't dominate the mining sector as, say, they do increasingly in the Katanga region of the DR Congo. The dominant mining firms, I would say, are kind of still in Zambia, still within the kind of Anglo, what I'd call that kind of Anglo-American sphere of influence. And so within that context, there's been a shift effectively from state corporate ownership of the industry and almost, I would say, a return to the kind of Anglo-American sphere of mining ownership and investment with some ownership from the kind of new emerging economies of India and China. I always get a little bit nervous when I hear Anglo-American sphere. That that usually doesn't uh, mean very good things for what's actually happening on the ground. Um, I One of the researchers that I work with wrote a few books that dealt with some of the uh, ramifications of Anglo-Americans activities in the Brazilian context. So I guess uh, the question that I have and what I'm really interested in is like, what does this look like on the ground? Like you've mentioned open pit mining and um, some kind of things that get my ears perking up, but um, what is it like? So Zambia's mining is large scale mining and increasingly in the kind of new mining areas of Northwestern Zambia is uh, open cast mines. So heavy machinery, it's increasingly automated, so does not use as much labor as, let's say, the kind of older mines in kind of the initial mining region of Zambia, which were kind of deep shaft mines. And mining there and the kind of mining corporations operating there have oftentimes tended actually to kind of adopt new technologies. And so they are run, for the most part, run quite efficiently. Many of them um, try to work and abide by kind of, you know, the 
the kind of global environmental kind of standards. But there have been several incidences actually that have been litigated on the older copper belt with regard to environmental pollution of waterways. And how do the kind of new mining areas like look like? You have, again, they're the kind of emergence of these new towns. They have to provide housing for their workers. And they're occurring within kind of rural areas. So you have this huge inequality between this kind of capital intensive activity and quite well-paid workers comparatively. And so that creates um, this kind of tension as well about around issues around redistribution and big debates around taxation. And so the big discussion now in Zambia uh, with regard that, you know, since around kind of 2003, when a lot of this resurgence of mining as a result of kind of growth in India and China and the green transition, you know, kind of, kind of catalyzing a demand for, for copper, is that people visibly see these kind of big capital intensive activities, big mining trucks and equipment kind of along the highways, and uh, new towns kind of emerging, you know, in um, rural areas and the forests. And um, and yet, for the large part, you know, m- the majority of the country is poor and they're struggling because of kind of global tax loopholes, struggling to collect any tax revenue. And so it's reanimated a discussion of nationalizing the mining industry in some circles, in particular amongst the trade unions that have shrunk, but are still quite vocal, and also amongst the kind of old mining community that effectively saw that their lives qualitatively compare, in particular for some of the older generations, um, what life was like under the state-owned mines. And so it's catalyzed this discussion. But that's not to mean that the country overall would like to have a return, I would argue, towards natural resource nationalism. Many of them have become kind of entrepreneurs within this kind of landscape. They were forced to. It's kind of like having to become entrepreneurs because that's the only way that people could make a livelihood. They like, to some extent, the freedom and the opportunities that it affords. But the big critique is that they don't have the basis of a public sector that supports that universal access to health and education, for example, the basis on which states were previously made. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, with with all this discussion of of these changes and this overview, something that pops into my mind, especially because, you know, it comes out uh, in a lot of discussions that we've had, and especially around like extractivism and alternatives, is how uh, extractive industries can really change traditional livelihoods. And since you had mentioned that, you know, this large-scale mining came in as a colonial project in the early 20th century, it makes me curious, especially with Zambia being such a diverse country, uh, culturally and geographically, what kind of traditional livelihoods were there in the Copper Belt before these colonial projects? Uh, Was there artisanal mining? Were people doing other sorts of things? That's a really good question. So 
around the time that the kind of industrial mining site, you know, the, the sites where industrial mining was established in places like Luantia on the Copper Belt, for example, on the Zambian Copper Belt, were actually sites of old mining, you know, you had kind of artisanal mining uh, in the area kind of covering, you know, what they call the kind of Central African Copper Belt covering kind of Zambia and kind of Katanga. So the region known as the Central African Copper Belt has a long history actually preceding industrial mining and the sites of industrial mining that started at the beginning of the 20th century were actually in kind of old copper mining sites. And uh, in the book Red Gold, there's an account effectively that kind of indicates that copper trade and mining actually kind of rose and waned also with the slave trade. And this also really quite strongly interlinks how copper has for a long time been inserted into the wider global economy also kind of indicating some of these trends. For example, one of the kind of big booms was in the post-Second World War period with the reconstruction of Europe. And in our times, in the contemporary period, the green transition, you know, and the kind of shift towards electrification effectively has created and generated a new demand for commodities such as copper and other minerals, such as cobalt, which is oftentimes mined with copper ore for electrification. Interesting. Electrification, of course, copper is so connected to electricity and the modern project of having lights. I know that earlier you mentioned that you were also very interested in how cities are put together. Is this where the connection is between those research interests? Sophia, yes. Um, so we are living at a time when we're increasingly thinking about the sustainability of our cities, uh, trying to move away from the use of fossil fuels and the gasoline car <laughs> and, uh, and effectively, you know, towards electric vehicles. And the research that I'm doing and is on the Zambian Copper Belt is that these two things come together because you have a wider surge in, in mining with potential kind of longer term prospects for the area, given this kind of global demand. So effectively consolidating and expanding what I'd call the kind of copper mining region of the, the country and effectively kind of reshaping it. And of course, it always kind of uh, is a site of fascination for social scientists and, and, and urban theorists alike. But a large part of, I would say, kind of urban anthropological studies, the Zambian Copper Belt, I would say, was a kind of like laboratory where a lot of thinking around that occurred. So there's that kind of train. But there's also the thinking about how it interlinks. And this is a kind of question I ask myself. If cities continue to be planned the way they are, you know, spread out, covering kind of great geographies, people still using cars rather than mass transit, it effectively catalyzes greater demand, but within a kind of political economy that does not distribute to the sites where mining is occurring. And so there is something there, and this is kind of holy work, there's something there in the way in which you have these kind of interlinking uh, systems, social uh, infrastructural systems that interconnect sites of extraction to the areas of consumption. 
largely within kind of wealthier uh, locales in, um, you know, Western Europe, North America, China and India, you know, in, in kind of increasingly. And so in thinking about those kind of dynamics, uh, there's been a push on the Africa side effectively to say, well, you know, sorry, we can't just be kind of mining these commodities, <laughs> getting a low price, corporations paying very, very low taxes, some value needs to be added to them. And that value needs to be added to them, not just to electric battery for motor vehicle storage or for renewable energy storage to a global market, but also to cater to Africa's own urbanization dynamics. You know, a lot of reports, I think UN Habitat anticipate that by 2050, most Africans will be living in cities. And so there's the beginning of a conversation and in, in uh, both at a policy level, but also in thinking about, you know, this kind of spatial social infrastructures in thinking about, you know, how does this kind of place-based extractive industry that's kind of interlinked to the global economy, how does one bring back some of that innovation and value to the places where you're having this kind of growth? Absolutely. And I mean, these are such huge things. And you're, you're ringing so many bells in my head right now with all of this. And, you know, I'm kind of curious, uh, kind of two aspects. We're talking about this sort of value addition uh, in industry, you know, thinking of not just mining the copper, but actually building it into things. Uh, how has that been progressing? I mean, I remember uh, the first time I, I visited Zambia in, I think, 2016. I was there for a, a conference on Africa-China dialogue. And part of that, we visited the East Lusaka multifunction economic zone. And they had some uh, some plans there for, for planned cities by like Chinese companies uh, with specifically built into them facilities for making the mined copper into cable at the very least. Uh, but I do recall at that time, like, yes, yes, we've started with the mining, but we haven't actually gotten around to making the copper cable factory yet. So I'm curious, like, has this been I mean, progressing that's well? That's a good question, actually. There is a, a, a prior to kind of this kind of deindustrialization, and actually there still is, there is a copper wire making company on the copper belts called Zamefa. They, you know, produce copper wire, but they have scaled down. They used to do more of that in kind of Zambia's state industrial past. And so to some extent, you know, some of these kind of industrialization or kind of value addition plans are effectively a kind of efforts to kind of rebuild an industrial base. It's not completely new. And I think what's different is the political economic context within which they are operating. You know, you have these multi-facility economic zones, which are effectively, to some extent, tax-free zones, right? With the intention to kind of attract private capital to manufacture in the country in the hope that it generates jobs and not necessarily at least tax revenue in the initial years, but maybe income tax revenue from workers. And I think that's kind of animating a lot of that discussion. And I think that discussion will not go away because I would say that there's a kind of global shift in thinking about uh, these broader issues around industrialization and catalyzed in part by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and uh, energy insecurity, uh, also by the COVID-19 pandemic and the disruption in global supply chains that it affected. 
leading effectively to global dominant economies such as the US through the Inflation Reduction Act to begin to onshore industries by effectively offering incentives to industries to reindustrialize the US. And for African countries, the pandemic, I would say, uh, with the difficulty in procuring vaccines and personal protective gear, kind of reanimated these discussions around effectively having industries onshore, because effectively, from the African perspective, they just saw that the rest of the wealthier world turned away. So what then happens in the future will be quite interesting. So there's, for example, a kind of memorandum of understanding between Zambia and the DR Congo and the US to build up a battery minerals value chain. Given this dimension, an agreement, a cooperation agreement had already been established between Zambia and the DR Congo. And with the kind of, you know, the US Africa summit, given these kind of broader discussions in the US as well, there was effectively uh, what I'd call a kind of intersection. But this intersection in terms of kind of like wealthier countries and kind of poorer countries trying to kind of industrialize and add value fits into, I would say, a change in the way that um, regions and countries are thinking about economy and kind of looking at it from a kind of social science uh, perspective. You know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, the kind of economic crisis on the Copper Belt catalyzed a new thinking about new moral economy and how they imagine their world, which effectively also gave rise to kind of populist politics. And so if you think about, you know, the kind of convergence in places like the U.S. of industrial decline and growing distrust in the state and kind of political actors and the like, and thinking about, you know, what then what do you do concretely to rebuild that trust and to rebuild those connections? And I think some of these kinds of um uh, reindustrializing nation states, but also reindustrializing, at least in the African context, regions, I would say it's a beginning of a response to some of these kind of broader social political issues. That's really interesting. But, you know, what are the implications of this? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I'm on a kind of geopolitical level, kind of if we have to kind of take a, a big spatial, you know, uh, leap scale. It's um, it's the question of how will countries such as Zambia and the DR Congo or Southern Africa in general, you know, the continent in general, with this kind of fast growing youthful population that will be living in cities, be able to negotiate within these kind of global currents um, an industrialization agenda that meets its development aims and is able to kind of redistribute from this. So how does Zambia and, and kind of countries ensure that they're not caught at kind of the geopolitical crosshairs of the US, but also China, you know, in this competition to onshore industry in the US and uh, and for China effectively to maintain and grow its economy. And so how will they navigate this? And I think this is a question that I'll be following up from the perspective of looking at how Zambia is negotiating this push towards 
value addition within a regional context, but also in relation to these kind of broader, bigger geopolitical actors. And the second, I guess, kind of interconnected to that is if industrialization or reindustrialization does happen in Zambia, but I guess it's also a question of other places such as, you know, say Detroit, <laughs> you know, uh, where my good friend Stephen Ma uh, in Malmo is doing work uh, on kind of urban dynamics uh, there, is what will be the kind of longer term uh, implications socially and politically? Will it uh, reanimate organized labor as industries uh, establish themselves and grow? What will be the implications of that? in terms of the kinds of politics that it animates and the relationship that residents have to the state and state authorities. As we shift from, maybe it won't happen, but I don't know, but if we do shift from, you know, a kind of ultra-liberal free market agenda, I would say almost a kind of libertarian agenda, <laughs> you know, uh, in, in some cases, um, uh, will it kind of, uh, will it also kind of shift populist politics and in what direction? And and there, I think, you know, kind of, you know, political scientists, you know, like kind of Stephen Marr and others kind of working on this are likely to follow that up. But my interest in particular would be in thinking about how it changes the character of place, how people relate to one another and what place will actually afford them for a living. Will it all be machines, given that we're also shifting towards automation? And so it's not really a kind of return to the past in some way. There's some of the narratives are, but um, it's a quite different industrial context. Wow. Thank you so much. And I mean, there are so many questions popping into my head and so many things I would love to discuss. I mean, would love to be able to get into dynamics of like urbanization and people I'm sure moving from the Copper Belt to Lusaka. This fascinating discussion on the shift in politics. I mean, especially the shift in politics between uh, the previous administration and current administration and how differently they handle things. Um, but You've been so generous with your time with us today, and hopefully we can have you back on in the future. We can dig even more into these other things, but we, we don't want to step too much on your time. So at the end of every episode, there's something we like to do. Wait, we're going to do something like now? I think so. Now. Now. Now, now. <gasps> like right now. Like this is happening. Brace yourself. <gasps> it's time for... So at the end of every episode, we like to ask our guests the question. It's a sort of call to action for our listeners. They're hearing this fascinating conversation and they want to learn more. They want to do more. They want to be able to do something in their daily life. Uh, so is there something that you could recommend for our listeners that they can do to learn more or be more active in this? Thanks, Chris. Uh, thanks, Sophia. I think uh, the listeners to your podcast should be asking more questions about the material basis of their cities. Where is stuff coming from? 
you know, in the kind of concrete, the wiring and the like. And they should be asking, is there a way to use resources much more efficiently and prudently? And they should also be asking, are there planners and developers designing and building their cities in a much more efficient way that's highly cognizant of where materials are coming from? So the one thing which is kind of like my pet thing, especially after kind of, you know, traveling to the U.S., is the need for mass transit. Not everybody can have a personal car or two or three cars, you know, sitting in the driveway. Um, that's, even if you kind of electrify, that's a lot of copper wiring, that's a lot of resources, and we could cut it down. I think that is such a good point and such a good answer to the question and really gives our listeners some food for thought. Thank you so much for joining us today and giving us insight into Zambia and the Copper Belt and these issues of mining and cities and some of the place change that's taken place in Zambia over the last, well, century. I mean, we got into it. We really talked. Yes, thank you so much. I mean, it's it's always an absolute pleasure. And we're so, so grateful to have you on here and really would love to have you back on in the future to dig even more into these things. Thanks, Sophia and Chris, for having me on. It's been a pleasure. A huge thank you again to Patience Masusa for coming on and having such a fascinating conversation with us. Please join us next month for another great conversation around extractivisms and alternatives. From simultaneously the cold spring of Helsinki, Finland, and the warm fall of Lusaka, Zambia, I am Christopher Shagnon. On behalf of Sophia Hagel and Yalbov, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.